Welcome to the Clueless at the Work podcast, where we talk through a framework for being successful in your job. My name is Anthony Garone, and I'll be hosting this show with some friends who are experts in helping people grow. The content is based on my book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, which is published by Stairway Press. You can find out more at cluelessatthework.com. Welcome back to the Clueless at the Work podcast. I have a special guest with me in the studio today. It is Claire Curlin. Claire, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to join. I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. I love that you're excited. (laughs) Yes, I know how much we love to chat, so we'll try to keep it under 24 hours for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, We'll talk fast. Right. So um, I got to, I had the pleasure of meeting Claire at work. She, um, She also works at Melt Media, just like Andy Fry, who was in our first three episodes of the podcast. And uh, Claire came to Melt Media through a lot of very uh, great recommendations, and she came to revolutionize Melt Media's uh, marketing and sales strategies. So uh, I got the opportunity to talk to her at, at length and in depth about these fields, and she taught me so much. So I'm really excited that she could be here. So thank you, Claire. Why don't you give a little bit, like 30, 60 second intro about yourself and your background? Certainly. Well, thank you for the generous introduction. And I'd love to cover a bit about how you and I initially connected because that's so relevant to so much of what you share in the book. But by way of accident, I am a marketer. So I've been in the field for almost 15 years now and stumbled upon it by a mistake almost. I wanted to be a writer. I wasn't exactly sure how to pursue that type of a career, but found myself falling into positions where I was coming up against uh, marketing needs and marketing responsibilities and found that I had a knack for it. So that once I realized that was my passion and such a good fit for what I want to do professionally, I got on a very intentional career path in the marketing field and discovered a um, focus area that I really enjoy is technology marketing. So Mm. translating something that at one time to me made no sense, technical concepts to something that uh, the market can actually understand and appreciate. Cool. So um, obviously this podcast is largely about my book, Clueless at the Work, and it is uh, there are a couple of themes, first being just kind of getting good at what you do and um, realizing that you're often not as good as you think that you are. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to call this like going from known cluelessness, or I'm sorry, from clueless cluelessness to known cluelessness. Uh, and I know that every great professional I've met has a story. So can you share anything about um, anything in your history where you went from cluelessly clueless to known clueless? I can share a lot of stories where I went from knowingly clueless or or cluelessly clueless (laughs) to to knowingly clueless. Um, We discussed a bit prior to this podcast recording about my reaction to the story that you share early in the book where you 
describe what might be considered a first moment of known cluelessness where you were uh, tapping your leg and, and maybe you can tell this story since you were there. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was with one of my musical heroes, Robert Fripp in uh, Mexico uh, for a week long guitar course. And the course was largely about mindfulness and meditation and preparing your body to, pr- to play an instrument and to perform music. And Robert was talking about listening to and uh, listening to your body and training your animal, meaning your body. Like you are separate from your body mm-hmm. being with your body being an animal that you train. Mm-hmm. And I'm nodding my head while he's saying this and and I'm nodding my leg quickly, you know, nervously. <laughs> nodding your leg. That's a good one. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> and he says, uh, like in the middle of this, he's talking about how we need to train our animal. And then he goes, for example, Anthony, everyone look at Anthony. He's, you know, his leg is bouncing and he has no idea why he's not even paying attention <laughs> to it. And everyone turns around. And, uh, I mean, it's one thing to be with one of your top heroes in the world for your creative work. And it's another thing to um, be ribbed about, you know, by that hero. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's when I realized that I was, that was one of the realizations of cluelessness in my life, where I was at a course listening to a hero of mine talk about controlling your body, and I was not, I was nodding and not in control of my body. <laughs> yeah, and I... Um... I'm so interested in that story because I think we've all had an experience like that. Hopefully, we've all had an experience like that to one degree or another. And I was thinking through my past and asking myself, was there a moment at which I felt I went from not knowing I was clueless to knowing I was clueless? And my conclusion is that I think I've always been painfully aware of my own cluelessness yes something that I dialed into by nurture by nature by both but from as long as I can remember even as a child uh, even as a child was very keenly aware of how I was being observed or how I might be uh, provoking reactions Mm. in others so while I can't describe a specific uh, watershed moment like that Mm. there are so many others that come to mind where I walked into a situation knowing I was clueless again Mm. having that lifelong sort of um, I don't know if you call it a burden or a gift I guess it's been both (laughs) at different times but then discovering I was clueless in a way that I hadn't previously considered. Um, One recent example that comes to mind that was a a really quiet but powerful moment in my life was where I had been in a position and I'm an ambitious person. So I'm constantly looking at um, where I am lacking, where there might be gaps in where I am today and where I want to go next. I'd been so fixated on my own progression and my own development. And in a, a casual conversation with a coworker, um, this, this coworker said to me, what is it that you're doing to help other people in our organization come up with you, particularly other women in our organization? And it was, um, in the best possible way, a, a slap in the face, a welcome slap mm. in the face for me to just take that perspective and think that as much as I might look at 
other individuals and feel like I want to emulate their success. There might be individuals who look to me as a potential resource or mentor or somebody who can help support their growth. And I think that I'd really lost sight of that. Mm. Um, and, and in terms of how we react to those moments, I think you, Anthony, have been a big influence in my life. We talked a bit about how we initially connected at work. And just one of the things that I think you have such a, a unique gift for is this genuine curiosity about other people. You initiated a, a conversation with me. I think you said something like, tell me what you're all about or what, what are your hopes and dreams? Very, mm. um, very potentially loaded question that maybe not everyone is interested in, but I've just been struck by your constant fascination with other people and really tried to channel that as mm. I reacted to this piece of feedback that I had received. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, I was out with some friends maybe a year, year and a half ago, and there's one guy, he's from California, another guy, he's from Scottsdale, and his wife was there, um, and me. Mm-hmm. And the the... the the two guy friends that were there just hadn't seen each other in a while. And they were like, Hey, how's it going? You know, gave each other a hug. And then, um, my friend Andy, his wife goes to give Mike a hug and, mm-hmm. and he goes, how are you doing? And she goes, Oh, I'm not going to answer that question. Yeah. And he goes, why not? And she says, there's too much to talk about. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here to connect with you and wow. talk about real important things in your life and mine. And it was so uncomfortable, but oh my goodness, it cut out 10, 15 minutes of wasted time chit chat, you know? Oh yeah. And I, I I was so struck that she did that, that she said that was so genuinely. Yeah. And I have occasionally run into people like that where I realize like they are after something. Mm Mm-hmm. And how much, I mean, you're in, you're in marketing. How much meaningless conversation do you run into at marketing conferences or whatever? It's like people just trying to figure out their angle on you and how they can oh, yeah. like use your network or your connections. But Rachel, she was like, cut to the chase. Yeah. I'm here to connect with you. Yep. And I'm here to, to create a meaningful moment in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Um, just seeing her, it might have been longer than that, probably three years ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. But just that moment alone made me feel like I want to connect deeper with people. Yeah. And um, I think most of my life, I, I've i just been really interested in connecting with people. So I appreciate you. That's a long you know, response to just saying thank you. Um, but it is intentional. And yeah. I think that's part of why I have this book, because... I care about other people doing well because I really truly believe that we are all interdependent. So it's great to meet people like you, especially at the beginning of a relationship and that I can ask you, so tell me what you're all about. And then you take it seriously. Like I think I see that in you and I think that's really cool. Well, thank you. And Mm -hmm. again, that, that curiosity, genuine curiosity, um, I think is really 
difficult to fake. That's something that our friend and your previous podcast guest, uh, Andy yeah. Fry, mm-hmm. has um, been discussing a lot lately within our organization. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. And it's telling that that moment you describe with your friend's wife sticks out in your mind because when there's enough inauthenticity that an authentic moment stands out that clearly three years later right what does it tell us right i think about it all the time yeah and when i have these trivial you know how's it going whatever i think of her i think of when she said that and i i admire it you know the discomfort is really so wonderful like when you look back on it like the welcome slap in the face that you you just described why was it welcome to you I think that I, in, in, on principle, do have very strong convictions and feel strongly compelled to act on, on what this coworker had brought to my attention to bring other people up with me. And that has been core to who I am, but I had lost my way mm. um, quite a bit. And that's do you feel in, like you were caught or something like, like you you thought you represented that and then like he or she asked you that and then you were like, oh, maybe I'm not actually doing what I believe. Yes, yes, absolutely. And not that I had gone out of my way to um, create a persona or a perception that I was that sort of person. It was a genuine and is a genuine desire of mine. I had just been fixated on something else and lost track of that piece of of my career and what mm-hmm. I want to contribute as a professional in an organization. So I think that's why it was welcome sometimes. And and you um, put the perfect word on it. It's discomfort mm-hmm. when somebody makes us uncomfortable like that. It's painful, sometimes excruciatingly so, sometimes embarrassing, like what you described with your, um, your music workshop in mm-hmm. Mexico. But that is a signal to me that my body and my my heart and soul are telling me there's something to it. There's mm-hmm. a reason you're having this reaction to it because it really struck something in you that you didn't know was there or had forgotten was there. So you said you've been kind of aware of this as a kid, you know, everything like all your life. So uh, what does that feel like? Is it a spidey sense? Is it a, you know, like, do you get just kind of like, do you feel attention in your body or do you feel like you think about what you're saying as you're saying it? Like what is happening and how do you realize that you're being clueless? I think to me, it feels like breathing or having your heart pump. It's just such a natural and automatic part of who I am and how I move through this world that I wouldn't say that even until I read your book, it was something I had put words to. Mm. Um, but that was one of the big takeaways from your book was just having a framework and a language to put around that cluelessness. And I jokingly called it a blessing mm. and a curse, but it is both. And I think that you can uh, treat it as a source of I guess, shame or some sort of an oppressive force in your life where you're aware of, of maybe your own shortcomings or others' perceptions of you in a way that can be paralyzing in truth. Uh, but 
then you can also transform that awareness into action. Mm -hmm. And another um, angle I've been reflecting on since reading the book has been somebody else's um, reaction to you, or maybe if it's, say, a, a piece of knowledge that you lack or just anything that you're, quote unquote, clueless about, um, filtering that information. So as you realize that you're clueless, it doesn't mean that this perspective or this input that you are missing is the right one. It just means that there's more information for you to integrate. But I think part of um, having characters figuring out how do I integrate that particular piece of input or information or awareness that's been um, inflicted on me in some mm. cases. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's something that I've just never, again, never put words to, but been a really useful mm. thought exercise. I, uh, for me, um, I think I've learned to detect it because I, I take so many notes mm -hmm. and that's just a habit of mine that I've developed over several years that I know when I'm not like when I'm in a car on a meeting, you know, you're, you just don't have time sometimes to mm -hmm. be at a desk. You need to get somewhere. And today I was on a call and this guy was saying, well, I think we should approach it like this and this and this. And he named like five things that I just had not even thought of. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my goodness, I should be writing this down. There's no way I'm going to remember everything that's in this guy's head. Yeah. And it's turned into a sort of not a spidey sense, but more like, uh, oh, I need to write this down. Mm. And if I'm not able to write it down, then I'm like, oh, my goodness, I really just don't know what I'm talking about. You know, and I'm <laughs> listening to someone who's you know, <laughs> casting wisdom before my very eyes and ears. Uh, but here I am unable to capture it. You yeah. know, and I feel like that's that's become my tell when mm. when I'm writing down a lot. Um, or typing notes. Mm -hmm. And when I'm not typing or writing, I think, is it because I think that I know everything? Mm. Or do I actually know everything that we're talking about? Or maybe it's just not important. You know, it's mm -hmm. like hard to tell if I'm judging it. But I think when I'm not taking notes at this point, after so many years of training myself, mm -hmm. uh, when I'm not taking notes, I think I'm comfortable with the knowledge. But the fact that I take so many notes, to me, is just a testimony to how clueless I feel a lot of the time <laughs> yeah he's taking furious notes right now by the way you guys can't see him he's not but hey you've got audio notes that's right <laughs> yeah exactly that, I'm, and I'm grateful for that yeah. so tell me um you said that these moments of discomfort kind of allow you to dive into transformation mm -hmm. something like that uh so we can go back to the story you shared where somebody pointed that out to you mm -hmm. that you're not advocating the way that you would have hoped mm -hmm. or maybe something else. But what does that look like for you? Are you like feverishly like do you drop everything to go and respond to it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's part of that filter that I was talking about. Right. So if I could um, oversimplify it a bit, I think that the self-conscious version of cluelessness that I referred to earlier might uh, provoke somebody to hear that sort of feedback, acknowledge that it's um, causing a reaction in them, and then as you described, just rush to 
immediately uh, perhaps appease that person or read the book that person suggested or any one of a million scenarios in which um, this might occur. I think that the more, um, I guess, constructive version of cluelessness is to intake that information, recognize your reaction, take a little time to think through it, and decide how you want to integrate that information. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I, I have an almost physical reaction to if, if someone, um, I don't know, drops a fork immediately, you know, leaning down to pick it up, just very much a people pleaser my, my whole life. Mm. So for me, the challenge and the struggle and the growth has been, again, in really making sure I adequately process that sort of, of clue mm. as it comes mm-hmm. in. Um, what what do I do with these clues? It's been a big question. So one of the reasons um, you're here is because you're an expert in marketing. And uh, I'd like for you to share what makes you uh, what makes you feel confident when you're marketing to people? And how do you like I feel like one big aspect of marketing is pointing out to someone that they're missing something which Mm -hmm. is largely what my book is trying to do Mm -hmm. like how do you use marketing to reveal someone's cluelessness like why am i not paying for this service or you know like (laughs) isn't that really what you're after you the conversion you know you want to you want to bring someone in string them along somehow emotionally and get them to convert so can you tell me a little about like how did you develop expertise as a marketer and how do you use, you know, what you know, and, and possibly in light of what we've been discussing here, mm-hmm. uh, in your in your marketing? It's a great question, and I'm going to deconstruct some aspects of it. So, uh, insofar as anyone defines marketing, I think that a common perception of marketing is that it is really in the service of a specific conversion or a purchase or uh, something of that nature, some sort of revenue-based action. And ultimately, for many organizations, that is certainly an indicator of success, Mm -hmm. right? But I think um, that marketing is about a lot more than that. It's about making a connection. It's about truth. I've heard brands described, branding described as truth-telling. So how am I creating consistency in a customer's experience uh, through every channel in which they might interact with my company? How am I helping to uh, craft messaging that actually meaningfully connects with them? I don't ever want to be in a position and, and thankfully have not been in a position where my job has been to sell something to someone who doesn't need it. Mm. It's more about making a connection with somebody who would find whatever it is you have to offer useful and helping them realize the ways in in which it might be useful to them. So when I think of it that way, it's a very different process than trying to get somebody to click a button or in a sense to try to manipulate um, their their feelings or their truth. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a a common... um, there are a lot of common misperceptions when it comes to marketing. And I, I certainly know there are plenty of marketers out there who might not agree with my definition of it, but that's really how I, um, how I practice it and how I think about it. 
to your question about what gives me the confidence um, in marketing or how do I know if I'm a good marketer, I think that ultimately um, there's my own assessment of myself and then there's an organizational assessment of if I am a quote unquote good marketer, right? So indicators of, of me being a quote good marketer in an organization might be numbers uh, about how many people have converted or purchased a product or inquired about your company. Um, and those are important metrics. They're what is going to drive investment and budget increases and, and everything like that um, that comes along with it. But again, I think there's a broader context to being a, a good marketer. And that's how do I connect with someone in a way that they feel genuine. So going back to those moments we've been talking about, um, not that I want it to always be a slap in the face for my <laughs> audience consuming our marketing message, but um, the the equivalent of that reaction that we've had when somebody has pointed something out to us that mm -hmm. maybe was an inner truth that we weren't recognizing at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I realize that can sound really lofty if someone's selling like, soda bottles <laughs> everything but, hey is, it's uh <laughs> it connects with everyone you know that's right yeah somebody out there like is really passionate about soda bottles they are and there are people who collect <laughs> collect them you know like there are. maybe not the plastic recyclable ones but glass bottles sure. and all that so yeah if you um i was just reading about coca-cola's previous um campaign around open happiness hmm that's not really about soda. It's about an experience mm -hmm. and, and nostalgia and all sorts of things that are, are those emotional connections and that product fulfilling a need that that consumer might have for a, a joyful moment if, you know, soda is your flavor of joy. Right. So. I don't know if you recall the story uh, called The Gap in the book by, um, I never remember his name. The guy from NPR, uh, this um, something Ira? life. Yeah, this American, this American life. life. Ira Glass. Is it? Yes, yeah, Ira Glass. Mm -hmm. And he's got a story. Well, not really a story, but it's something that he shares called the gap. Mm -hmm. And it identifies. It's like you might think that you're really good, but there were, there's a gap between what you're able to deliver and what your tastes mm -hmm. are. And in the beginning, that's a really big gap. And you really just have to keep working harder and harder and harder to get there. Let me see if I can find it. We've got the book here with us, folks. Yeah. He's paging through. Uh, thankfully, there's only 90 chapters in this book. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the table of contents is pretty laid out. Yeah, there it is. Um, but yeah, so I'd like to hear kind of your perspective because uh, to me, marketing is so psychological and like you're saying, you're trying to connect with someone on an experiential level. Like mm -hmm. it might be a feeling that you want to invoke. Mm -hmm. It might be a direct like, no, you need to buy this mm -hmm. message. It could be anything in between. It could be a color, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. like certain companies own certain colors, you know. That's right. Um so how, what does the gap look like in marketing? Like, how do you, how do you go from, like when you look back at yourself 10 years ago, mm -hmm. how, what are the leaps forward that you've made 
And what are the gaps that you see in, you know, Claire minus 10, 15 years versus Claire now? All right. So I think that's a good question. And it brings to mind, mind the gap, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which now that I think about it would make a great, great mantra. I think that looking back 10 years ago, one of the mistakes I made, one of my, um, my clueless, uh, moments, if you will, was thinking that as a marketer, I had to be an expert in everything. I am admittedly a bit of a know-it-all. So that was getting over my arrogance and thinking I had to know everything about everything. And, um, I had, I had a mentor tell me once a story about when he was directing a commercial and, um, he was somehow getting up out of the director's chair and, and, walking around and really doing um, work that wasn't the work of a director. And and somebody said to this guy, your job is to sit down in that chair and be the director. You're not this, you're not this, that is your job. So what are the boundaries around your role? My version of that story is uh, having a a boss in a job several jobs ago where I was working at a tech company. And as a a mid-level marketer with less experience, I felt like I needed to know everything about the technology. If I didn't know at least as much as all of our engineers, then I was a failure and a fraud. And um, in my feedback, in my performance review, she said, that's not your job. Your job, you Mm. are not an engineer. Your job is to talk to the engineers. And that was such a wake up call and honestly, such a relief. And that's, really helped me identify one of my strengths, which is to translate nerd talk into something that people want to hear. No Mm. offense, nerds. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm one of you. I resemble that remark. (laughs) I looked at Anthony when I said that. But really to to translate something that might be a little bit technically dry into something people actually care about, Mm -hmm. that was huge to go, oh, I don't have to be the expert in everything. can be the expert in some things. And then also noticing maybe if there's stuff I should be an expert in that I'm not, how do I go about learning that? Um, You talked about the story where you had a colleague on the phone and and he mentioned five things that you hadn't thought about. So just cultivating that awareness of, okay, there are some things that I don't know that I should know. There are some things I don't know that I don't need to know. And there are some things I do know that I can share with other people. So Mm -hmm. let's start really trying to discern between those categories of clues, if you will. Um, that's been a really big transformational power for me in my, in my career. Um, another thing that I've done to close those gaps, um, it's something I've done for a long time, but I will constantly devour job descriptions for the type of role that I want to have in the future, um, be it usually two years from now, three years from now, wherever my next move might take me. And really, at one point, I was actually writing down all of the skills that I felt like I would need in the role I wanted next and making a point of pursuing projects or um, getting mentorship or education or, or reading up about these topics to be sure that I was cultivating that knowledge and those skills. Um, it's that constant just intellectual curiosity and desire to always be better than Mm -hmm. you are no matter 
where you're starting from. You mentioned feeling like a failure or a fraud. Um, how, how do you get over that? You don't. You don't. <laughs> you well, heard it first. <laughs> I don't know that I have. And we could do a whole spinoff series on imposter syndrome and, of know, course, yeah. the, the whole gender dynamics. We all suffer from it. I right. think there are unique experience that, experiences that women have around that specifically. Mm-hmm. So um, how, do I, how do I get over it? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing that's helped is having role models who admit that they have that issue as Mm. well. Um, I read a book called The Confidence Code that came out several years ago uh, about this very topic by two very prominent um, female authors who just admitted that they also suffered from that. So having somebody in a powerful position really speak to that, I think, can go a very long way. I hope that me admitting that I have that issue on this podcast today might help even just one person go, oh, it's okay. Right. We all, we all feel yeah. that way. How about you? Do you ever feel like a, a fraudster? I used to feel that way a lot. Yeah. A lot. And I talk about that a little bit in the book. Um, but a couple things happened. One, Mike Moulton from Melt Media spoke to me and he said, if you're going to lead this company, you need to you need to change these things. Mm. And it took me a while, but I changed them. And it included sarcasm, self-deprecating humor, um, just personal belief mm-hmm. like about my abilities. And it takes a while, or it took me a while, but eventually I thought, oh, you know what? There, There's actual fruit here. Like things are... Mm-hmm. I am doing well. I am doing a good job because so much of what I do is, I mean, I just had a guy teasing you today. Like what, what is it you'd say you do here? (laughs) He sent me that gif, you know, from (laughs) office space. And then he's like, well, you know, this guy does this, but you dot, 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 you know, (laughs) so it's even happening today. But if I was not, if I had not gone through the transformation to stop believing that I was a failure, mm-hmm. those comments today would have wrecked me. Oh, yeah. And um, I've just learned, I mean, through writing the book and all the experiences that led up to it, everyone's faking their way through it. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Mm-hmm. There is no manual. There's no training program. That's and right. the only difference between me and some like, super successful C-level whatever is probably confidence, (laughs) luck, right place at the right time. And it just, they have a different circumstance, you know? And, and, but like, that doesn't mean that they're better than I am at, at the job or smarter or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who are a lot less talented and smart than I am that are very successful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who are more that are very successful. Sure. And I guess I start there. There's on a, there's a few things that really helped me. One was this notion of the graveyard of um, unsuccessful people. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, billions of people, 10, 10 billion people have ever lived. Mm-hmm. How many of them were geniuses? Mm-hmm. You know, just on that scale. Right. And how many of them can we name? Right. Right. And they may have completely transformed their communities and all this stuff. And we only know like 
a hundred people like off the top of our head from sure. Plato and Aristotle to like Martin Luther King, you know? Sure. So I just think I, it may not be in my, in the, in the hand that I'm dealt mm-hmm. that I'm some sort of Bill Gates type or even just like the senior director of AWS, mm-hmm. you know, Amazon web services. And that's okay. Because yes. that guy is probably really smart. <laughs> but on the other hand, like, is that person a lot better than I am? Well, that's a that's a great question. Poof, brings up so much. Uh, right. I think that a couple of things is, number one, what does it mean to be successful? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be great at something? Right. And, right, those people who survived history Mm -hmm. survived because someone decided that was the definition of greatness. But for every great philosopher, um, many of the great religious prophets, somebody was at home taking care of the kids. That's right. I'll tell you who could not go wander into the desert for a couple of months and found a religion. Me, (laughs) I have a child to take care of, (laughs) right? right. I'm not going to go down in history for getting my child to school alive, but I consider that to be a form of success, mm-hmm. a form of greatness, maybe one that's not fully recognized mm-hmm. or celebrated. But I do think that expanding our notions of greatness or, or even challenging our definitions of success is so incredibly important. Totally. Totally. Um, and I think that, that too, there's this concept of the merit myth that mm-hmm. we assume that our success was due to our hard work or some other sort of merit-based factor when you look at the data it shows there are so many factors um, to success that we don't think about from our ability levels physically to to appearance to upbringing just Mm -hmm. a myriad of things that um, might in fact be the difference it doesn't make someone quote-unquote successful less great or or us any better but they are very real factors um the thing i do know is i'm happy yeah and i don't know if the senior director of who knows what it is at amazon whichever what is happy right they may have millions of dollars more than i do but i'm happy and i like waking up and living life so yeah to me the measure changed as well you know how do you stop thinking that you're a, a fraud or a failure well, I look at my life. I'm like, actually, yeah. I have it pretty good. I like what I do. I like who yeah. I am. And that's, yeah. I mean, when you was can't the be last... a failure in, if you believe right. that. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. Um, when I, I'm sure none of your kids have ever asked, Dad, why aren't you a C-level executive yet? Right. right. They exactly. don't care. Like, they they don't value care. you. They love you. The right. People who love you most in the world are, mm-hmm. are not asking that question. So mm-hmm. it's, at least for me, um, and I think in our profession in particular, a white collar, you know, tech profession and corporate America, decoupling financial indicators of success from personal indicators of success is important. It doesn't mean that they're always inversely correlated, but right. just that they're different yeah. and not always associated positively or negatively or, or at all. Um, That's right. The other thing that I'm... I've discovered um, around success and and the definition of achievement is that as far as I know, there's not a secret club of people who have made it, mm-hmm. who have some formula or a set of keys that I don't. If there is, guys, 
know where to find me. <laughs> Send me a right. key I want in the club. But yeah. it's like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe the difference between me and, and someone I see as superior or more successful isn't some innate, um, you know, failure on, on my part. Like you said, it's so many different things. And back to the story that I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's like, maybe you are more successful in other people's eyes than you think. Maybe, Absolutely. maybe Absolutely. they look at you and think you have that secret key in your pocket. Yeah, so I know. Perspective. I know that's true for me. Yeah. I know people think that I do make weird music for a living that yeah. I, you know, they, cause that's the image on social media and mm-hmm. it's not like I'm trying to craft some identity for myself. I'm just like, Hey, this was fun. I'll post that. Hey, that I liked that. I post mm-hmm. it. But uh, for other people, and when you have a brand that has several thousand followers, like mm-hmm. they don't know any different. Right. You're, that's what you do. That's who you are. That's your, you know, you're representing yourself. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason, I mean, I didn't come up with the concept art Dave Woodruff did for the mm-hmm. book, but there's a reason my son's on the cover and I'm like on the back and we're wearing the mm-hmm. same outfit because we're all just the same kids we were, you yeah. know, we're just in these big bodies. Yeah. And I feel like the people who have figured it out, you know, in quotes, mm-hmm. are the people who just assumed their identities as adults mm-hmm. and they're not like, they're not complaining about being big and <laughs> and adults and you know they're not complaining about having adult things it's like you, you can embrace it or you can fight it yeah and inside we are just and a lot of the people I meet mm-hmm. in all sorts of jobs from sea levels of multi-million dollar companies to individual contributors I'm hiring out of high school or college mm-hmm. we're all just kids you know oh, yeah it's like yes. As you just think like, oh, I have a job now. I'm no longer a kid. Actually, you're still that you still carry around all this baggage of being a kid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so much. And that's um, it's a good thing. I think it's a blessing <laughs> and a curse like everything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great to maintain that childhood creativity, that passion, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm going to conquer the world. But on the other hand, I temper it with reality like okay statistically 90% of startups fail and you know this and that here the odds are against me and the market is this way and you you know make weird music is not going to be a million subscriber type thing Mm -hmm. and that's okay but if I was running a tech channel and I didn't have a million subscribers I'd be like maybe I'm not trying hard enough you know yes oh yeah (laughs) and it's like what is the the measure of legitimacy right um there's it's not fixed it's, no it's just as a um case in point when we talk about metrics in particular uh i've been in situations where okay so you go to a marketing conference say mm-hmm. and a marketer from a competitor brand or another brand stands up and talks about how they got this huge influx of say traffic on their website one of mm-hmm. the most referenced examples would be um Oreo sent out a tweet when the Super Bowl power went out saying you can still dunk in the dark, right? So everyone (laughs) wants these Oreo moments where you have massive influxes of traffic onto your company website. And um, I've, I've been in situations, as I said, where I've looked at those and we're like, 
wow, we had a huge spike in traffic. That's amazing. We should all be really proud. And then we dig a little deeper and we're like, oh, it was an Estonian bot army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at that. We're getting DDoS. <laughs> so it's, uh, don't always assume that that, that high number, that right. um, that thing you have in your mind as, as that metric is a fixed one or even mm-hmm. a legitimate one because it's different for everyone right. in every or that situation. It, it even occurred because of your tweet. You know, <laughs> right. like maybe someone prominent <laughs> retweeted it and made a joke about it and they're like, oh yeah, I got to check that out, you know. That's right, right. It's, um, yeah. it's pretty interesting. Um so any sort of uh, parting notes as we wrap up this episode, like any thoughts that you'd like to express to people who might, you know, benefit from the book or something like that? Yes, so many. I would say probably the most powerful thing that anyone could do tomorrow um, to help on the journey to to doing the work, whether you're clueless or uber clueful what is the opposite of clueless um wise clued clued in wise there you go (laughs) um would be just to ask ask somebody hey i've been i listened to this podcast or I, i read this book and i've been thinking about my own cluelessness my own blind spots is there anything that you'd be willing to share with me that maybe i'm not thinking about Mm. um start there and then of course filter that information right because if you ask your your best friend and your worst enemy you might get very different answers but just use your um your own convictions to filter through that feedback and decide what you're going to do to address it awesome thank you very much we should do another episode about imposter syndrome and failure and those kinds of things the gender dynamics and all that so i would love that i'm i'm expert on failure (laughs) (laughs) from personal experience yeah me too so i think that's why we get along (laughs) i think so (laughs) right on. listen to us a couple of failures so yeah thank you and to just um recap two of the people you mentioned in this episode who our listeners might not have known mike moulton is the chief technology officer of Mm -hmm. the agency where i work melt media and dave woodruff one of our co-founders who anthony mentioned did the artwork for the book um both great leaders and Mm -hmm. thinkers and people worth looking up and and following excellent thank you claire thank you so much